Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. It is a Monday. We're doing programs on Monday and Tuesday of this week. I have um, a leadership thing, a Bobby Wobber thing. That's a very technical description of a uh, leadership retreat uh, this week. So we will be doing Monday and Tuesday as announced at the uh, top of the hour. I have some questions for uh, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. I have some I have some questions for you. A statement uh, came out today and I noticed that it's been signed by a number of people that automatically uh, you know sort of caught my name or, or my attention um, when it was uh, when it was first posted. Of course Richard Mao immediately tells me this is uh, way off on the left side on the left wing of the left wing. Uh, so that didn't really surprise me a whole lot. Um, Richard Foster. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, David Black. Mm-hmm, all right. But Samuel T. Logan, president emeritus, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Now I've been told that he was dismissed for having a leftward leaning even in 2005, but still it gives you a, a, some, some idea uh, Bryant Myers, also from Fuller uh, Seminary. Uh, Dennis Hollinger, uh, President Emeritus, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, so here's some of the people, and these are as pro-life evangelicals. Pro-life evangelicals for Biden.com. And I'm seeing this type of a statement more and more, and I think we need to examine it logically and be prepared to challenge it. As pro-life evangelicals, we disagree with Vice President Biden and the Democratic platform on the issue of abortion. Let me just stop immediately. Abortion is not just an issue. It is a foundational worldview conclusion. And it is not—see, because people are not taught to think holistically—and this is going to come up in my debate review later on—people today do not see how what they say in one area— is actually based upon conclusions they've come to in another area. And so they they allow distinctions to stand that are actually not there, and they don't practice proper recognition of categories. Abortion is not just an issue over here. We can't take the worldview situation we face today and do the, the, the chicken coop type thing uh, or the uh, yeah, most of you are too. man. It's getting tough to come up with illustrations that span the uh, age range of <laughs> because things have changed so much. But uh, back when I was young, uh, when you got a job someplace, normally uh, you would come in and there would be a a male, but you'd have a male slot, and sometimes it was just a, a wooden rack with little squares in it and you'd you'd put stuff in there it could be your paycheck it could be uh, notifications uh, vacation stuff uh, your pink slip yeah whatever that's ignore the man behind the uh, behind the glass he's just you know um and uh so a lot of people treat theology that way that's that's the normal context in which i've addressed this where you have your doctrine of God, your doctrine of the Bible, your doctrine of the church, your doctrine of end times, and they're all just separated from one another. And you're never supposed to touch the stuff in anybody else's box. Um, and so these doctrines 
actually never touch each other either. And that's not good for Christians. What you believe about God should be absolutely foundational, what you believe about everything else. And there should be connections between them, but not connections to where they all become the same thing. That's, that's the other extreme. So on the one side, you get the people that just have a totally fractured theology. Then on the other side, you get sort of a fundamentalist mindset where every single doctrine is equally important. So your doctrine of God, for many fundamentalists, let's be honest, your doctrine of end times things is more important for many fundamentalists than your doctrine of God. I know many of fundamentalists that could not define the doctrine of the Trinity if you put a gun to their head, but they can run you through 12 different verses on a pre-tribulation rapture, right? Hopefully we all see that's not good. That, that's not having the foundations strong and then building on that foundation and recognizing there are some things that absolutely define the faith and there are other things that do not absolutely define the faith, that there have been disagreements on for a very, very long time. Well, in a worldview situation, you're, you're looking at the same thing. And when it comes to abortion in the situation that we look at in Western culture today, very plainly, it is the result of a worldview regarding the nature of man that is fundamentally anti-Christian. Fundamentally anti-Christian. It denies that God is the creator. It denies that God has created man in in his image and has revealed with clarity not just the issue of the humanity of the preborn child, but sexual morality itself that brings about the creation of human life. So that the entire sexual revolution in, in its entirety, and that, that means uh, the, the questioning of gender, sexuality, marriage, uh, everything that is associated with it, is rebellion against God. And any pro, quote-unquote pro-life evangelical, if that word evangelical can have any meaning whatsoever at all any longer, and given many of the people who signed this, it doesn't. Because many of these people do not believe that the Bible is a clear, consistent revelation from God. The vast majority of these people do not believe that God has spoken with clarity. They do not believe that God has spoken with clarity. So this is meant to confuse. But the point is that when you talk about the issue of abortion— You are buying into a narrative that is a fundamental lie and must be challenged from the start. It is not simply an issue. It is the result of an entire worldview conversation. All right. So so it's real easy to go. We disagree with Vice President Biden and the Democratic platform on the issue of abortion. No, you disagree with the Democratic platform on its entire worldview commitment. And if you are not bright enough or honest enough to see that Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry owns the Democratic Party en toto, then you're just simply not honest with the reality around you. That's just all there is to it. This isn't, this isn't well, we can have a discussion about it. No, that's just the way that it is. You cannot be a pro-life Democrat anymore. Have you not noticed that? It's become very plain. Continues, but we believe a biblically shaped commitment to the sanctity of human life 
compels us to a consistent ethic of life that affirms the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. Now, here is where the Marxist leftists, and you just, let's just be honest where this is coming from, because this is going to come out in, what, in the next paragraphs. Once you see someone using the terms equality and turning it into a, syn- a synonym for equity, you're dealing with Marxism. They can jump up and down and say, no, 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 you're just being, you're just being, no. Once you will not make the worldview decision that recognizes that while all men are created equal before God, not all men are created equal in the sense of possessing the same gifts from their creator. Everybody knows this is true. It is obvious People just don't want to discuss it. So we've used sports illustrations in the past, but I'm not watching sports anymore. But there are certain sports that obviously I could never play. I was not given the gifts of God to be able to do those things, to be able to perform on that level. I am not tall enough or fast enough or strong enough or whatever else it might be. And in the Christian worldview, my genetic makeup comes from the hand of God. He has a purpose in that. I can actually look at that and go, hey, uh, here's where I can find out what I'm supposed to do in the sight of God. And I don't even have to worry about things like playing basketball. <laughs> I've, I've played basketball. It's fun, you know, at, at, at the local uh, local court years ago when you could still you know, turn on a dime and stuff like that without stringing everything in your, your hips and your knees and, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. That was, that was fun. Uh, oh, it is already turned down. Good. All right. I was just looking at the uh, thermostat to make sure it's cool enough to keep me from frying in here. Um, we get, we get all that. Um, but the reality is there are people that have gifts to be able to do scientific inquiry, medical inquiry. There are, are gifted engineers to be able to solve complicated pro- problems, send spaceships to Mars. And, you know, we've got, a, we've got a rover heading for Mars right now. I think that's really exciting. I, I just love that kind of stuff. You can go online and actually follow it and watch it where it is and all sorts of neat stuff like that. I don't have that capacity. And equity is saying we should all have the same but I think someone who has the capacity to do those, those things should be rewarded for having that kind of capacity. And we obviously don't have any problem with people who have, you know, I think it, I think it is upside down that, that we only give a certain amount of reward to people who can land a spaceship on Mars safely. But someone who can throw a round inflated ball 23 feet into a hoop consistently gets 500 times, 5,000 times what the guy that can land the spaceship on Mars gets. Says a little something about our society, but that's where we are. The point is equality and equity are not the same thing. And to demand equity is to say God needs to make us all the same. And he doesn't. Same thing with nations. Yeah, hate to tell you this, but the Bible teaches that God blesses some nations and other nations he doesn't. And history proves that that is true. Oh, but that can be abused. Anything can be abused. All truth can be abused. Two plus two can be abused. 
You don't, you don't, and it is being abused. You don't, you don't get rid of truths just because they can be abused. Every biblical truth has been abused at some point in the past, too. So don't even go there. So what you're hearing here is a consistent ethic of life that affirms the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. And so this, here's the category error. They will equate not suctioning a baby into pieces in the womb with providing welfare, which, for example, has destroyed the black family since 1965. Those are the same things now. Those are the same things now. So uh, now being pro-life and affirming the value of the child in the womb means that you must be for big government bailouts, debts, and socialism. They're not the same thing. They are not logically the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. But we live in a day where what's logical doesn't really matter to a lot of folks. So the next uh, line, next uh, section. Check this out. Many things that good political decisions could change destroy persons created in the image of God and violate the sanctity of human life. Now, please notice the elevation of political decisions. These are big government socialists that are speaking here. And, and religious people can be big government socialists, whether that's consistent with biblical revelation is a different issue. Poverty kills millions every year. Well, poverty has existed amongst mankind from the beginning, and it was a far greater killer of the past. And in fact, it is capitalism that has fundamentally diminished the role of poverty around the world. Just, just look back over the past 500 years. Any meaningful study of the role of poverty with human mortality will demonstrate that it is capitalism that has raised the living standard of the world far more than anything else. But this is fundamentally opposed to that, just so you know. Poverty kills millions every year. So does lack of health care and smoking. Okay, I detest smoking. I always have. Uh, I've always felt that it just stinks to high heaven. Um, But I can put that in the proper category as well. I mean, I'm old enough that when I first flew on a jet, there was a smoking section and non-smoking section. I I flew before the ban on smoking. on, on, And it didn't matter where you were in the plane. As long as one person lit up, Everybody got off the plane smelling like that person's cigarette. And I, I didn't like that. But I can recognize where that is and in the priority list with abortion, not even close. And then, of course, so does lack of health care. Health care has now become the right that everyone's supposed to have. Because, wow, we, just, we can do things now we can never, ever, 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 ever do before. But again... This is only the second or third generation that could have even begun to think about this. So much has things, have things changed just in the past short period of time. Uh, when, when I was younger, you recognized that there were certain kinds of treatments that, well, that would be great, but, you know, that's just that's ridiculously expensive. And no one at the time had yet come up with the idea, well, and we should force everybody to pay for my medical treatment. That's now a universal given. Now a universal given. And 
now it's and then now the next comes then everybody needs to pay for my sex change operation and uh you know, and my abortions and my education and my housing and everything else that's that that's how governmental thievery is is established racism kills well i have a feeling i know what this is being is the context it's been used in, and it's, of course, a lie. It's a false narrative in the United States. Oh, racism does kill, but it's primarily black-on-black racism in Chicago. I didn't see the numbers for this weekend. Uh, at least last weekend or the weekend before, it was 80 shot, 5 killed. That was, that was, that was actually an improvement, because we've had as, as many as, like, 20, I think, in, dead in, in one weekend over the, over the course of the summer. It's a war zone. That racism kills because that's that's real racism, but it's black on black. And, of course, that's not actually racism anymore because it's been redefined. But the idea is that white cops are hunting black men down in the streets every single night. And the facts say that's a lie. It just isn't true. And everybody knows it isn't true, but it's politically expedient to use it right now to to disrupt and destroy the Constitution of the United States. Uh, racism kills. It does in Africa. It does big time in Africa, and it, it does in many other nations, like in in uh, Asia, uh, where there is racism between various tribes and things like that. Yes, racism does kill in those contexts, but that's not the context in which this is being used because now those people are voting for Joe Biden. Well, they might be. <laughs> I'll take that back. I I I personally believe that 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 the election in November of this year, which we won't know about until December of this year, um, will be the most corrupt in, in American history. I do believe that. Um, I, I, I honestly have accepted that, that narrative. I think there's strong evidence for it. So, but they're not, they're not in, they're not a part of the audience for, for this statement. Unless we click, quickly make major, major changes, devastating climate change will kill tens of millions. That is another fraud. But, hey, it sells. And it has been repeated so many times that especially young people just accept it as, as, the, as the assured results of science when it is not. By any stretch of the imagination. Any stretch of the imagination. But it's the narrative in media, and so you just believe it. So now you're getting an idea of where these quote-unquote quote unquote, pro-life evangelicals are coming from. Poverty, lack of accessible health care services, smoking, racism, and climate change are all pro-life issues. There's where these people are really going. This is a dilution of the very strong movement that has been growing for a long time for the abolition of abortion. This is how you dilute it, by trying to channel that energy, which is really come about by our increasing knowledge of the humanity of the preborn and by the sonogram. The, the, the ability now, almost everybody now, gets to have a 3D full-color picture of the child in the womb before they're born. I think that's awesome. It's wonderful. But the fact is, if you can look at a 3D picture of the baby's face in the womb and then the baby's face two days after being born, and it's the same face, the continuity of human life is thereby established. And that has changed everything. As long as the womb was a dark, mysterious, unknown place, then you could hide these realities. You can't do it anymore. And so now they're trying to channel 
that power into their Marxist socialism to try to change how society functions. None of this, of course, is based upon scriptural categories, though I am well aware of the fact that all these people will abuse the scriptures to try to create connections. We have been seeing that for years now, especially since 2018, uh, where the, the, the switch was flipped and it's full speed ahead. And so we're getting it from TGC and ERLC. And we, we get all the really, really, really bad, uh, tangential, um, uh, horrible, eisegetical argumentations from leading names and people. Uh, to try to connect these things together. But the idea is is to divert the power of the pro-life movement from the central sacrament of the Democratic Party, which is abortion, into promoting the idea of Marxism, socialism, and the utopian socialist state, which is also known as communism. So there you go. Um As the National Association of Evangelicals official public policy document for the Health of Nation insists, quote, faithful evangelical civic engagement witness must champion a biblically balanced agenda, end quote. Therefore, we oppose, quote, one issue, end quote, political thinking because it lacks biblical balance. Well, this politically motivated, deceptive, evil statement. And I hope you've got my idea as to exactly where I come down on this. We need to be able to see through this. This is this takes the same type of level of discernment that it takes to, to, to see through when um, ecumenical statements are made that attempt to deceive people as to the religious beliefs of various groups. This is what this is how you can recognize when Mormonism is is trying to enslave you about while claiming to be the 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 one true church and and all the rest of this type of stuff. Um, therefore, we oppose one issue political thinking, even though they're the ones that made the mistake of calling abortion the one issue. It is they who are not seeing the connections. It is they who are bringing in the anti-biblical, anti-Christian presuppositions and saying, it's fine for you to go ahead and go this way. There is a full court press right now on the part of people who used to be regular stalwarts at Reformed biblical preaching conferences to convince you that you can go ahead and bury that voice in your conscience that's saying, but these are the people that are putting puberty-blocking hormones in eight-year-olds. These are the, these are the people that, are, that their worldview promotes polyamory and, and bisexualism and homosexuality and, and, and the profaning of marriage and, and the, 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 the murder of unborn children, but because they want to balloon the national debt even farther into the stratosphere in the name of equity to give people money, I can go ahead and vote for them and feel like I'm doing what Jesus would have done. That is a full court press from people that 10 years ago I would have said, no, no, they would never do that. Oh, but they are. But they are. And it's being highly effective. Let's just be honest, it's being highly effective. I am seeing Christians in my feeds that are actually going, well, you know, what really is wrong with socialism? I mean, you know, didn't Jesus say some like socialist things? And you're just like, wow, 
I mean, it, it really makes me go, this is, this is a, a deception that can only be explained by judgment on a nation, especially when you have Christians falling for it, going, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Um, so, just the next, next paragraph real quick. Knowing that the most common reason women give for abortion is the financial difficulty of another child. How about adultery? How about fornication? How about unfettered sexual license? How about that? It, it seems like these folks have the idea that, well, that's just going to happen. There's just the way it is. Nothing you can do about it. And so we've just got to do the best we can in light of what's actually going to happen. Um, we appreciate a number of Democratic proposals that would significantly alleviate the financial burden. In other words, steal from you, your children, and your grandchildren, and give it to people who engage in illicit sexual behavior. That's what these evangelicals are saying. Accessible health services for all citizens. Abortion. Affordable child care and a minimum wage that lifts workers out of poverty. As if that can ever work. All of history shows they always run out of money. I would just simply suggest that everyone who signs this statement, if they're going to be consistent, then sell your property and move to Venezuela where this is already being done. Move to a place that's consistent. See how it's working. See how it's working. That, that, that's the way to do it, right? They won't do it. They won't do it. Just, it is, it is an astonishing day. It is an astonishing day that we live in. There is, uh, there is absolutely no... Wow. Anyway, uh, a few questions for the uh, alleged pro-life evangelicals. Shift gears completely here. Uh, I hope some of you had the opportunity. If you haven't yet, I hope you will take the time. We haven't linked to them yet, have we? We need to get uh, need to get the debates into our YouTube page. You can uh, we we've got full permission to do with them as we wish. So you can either just link over to theirs or grab them and upload them or whatever you want to do. Well, make sure to grab a copy though. Yeah, make sure make sure we got an archive copy. Um, in, in something that we hide in a EMP-proof box somewhere. <laughs> really, really hate to lose all that stuff. Oh, but I, I do. I've got my backups inside those. I've, I'll give, I'll give you some. I'll give you some of those uh, bags. Put in a lead-lined box, and yeah, we'll, we're, we're, we may not have a computer to restore it on, but we'll have the data someplace. Anyway. Right next to your tinfoil hat. That's that's perfectly fine. Um, over the weekend, Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, we did uh, technically two debates. I'm going to call it one debate because it was one debate. I mean, it was even advertised as part one, part two of a critical text versus TR only position. But we did uh, two debates. They lasted right at around two hours, I think, maybe a little less than two hours uh, each. Um, between myself uh, and Dr. Jeffrey Riddle. And uh, he had insisted, 
that uh, the long ending of Mark be included. I disputed that for a simple reason. It's not a TR-only passage. If we're going to be debating the unique claims of the Texas Receptus-only position, and remember, these folks have said that I am not confessional uh, because if you use anything other than the TR, then you can't really be a Reformed Baptist. I'd like to point out that the vast majority of Reformed Baptists don't believe that, um, but that's their position. And uh, so... From my perspective, if you're going to have a debate, and I've explained this before, but it really seems to me, I listened, Dr. Stephen Boyce did a thing with Jonathan Sheffield on uh, the the same YouTube channel, reviewing the debates uh, on Saturday evening, and I appreciate, I'm going to have Stephen on with me. He and I did um, a couple hours on the errors in the TR. Uh, I don't know, a month or so ago or something like that. Uh, he's younger than my youngest child. And so the next generation that's going to be fighting this battle long after us old folks have uh, already uh, moved on to uh, uh, eternity itself. But um, he was on, and, and I, I could simply tell by some of the comments that Sam made, um, the host, um uh, and certainly I'm sorry, but Jonathan has never ever accurately represented me. Not once, not that I know of. And I, I think it's I I just don't think he's capable of doing it. Now what's fascinating is he's gonna be debating Bart Ehrman um on the same YouTube channel. That's one I am looking forward to listening to because I know what's gonna happen. Um, just as I am constantly misrepresented, so will Ehrman, and, and Ehrman will not put up with it. Now, he'll stay there because he's getting paid to do it. But it's, it's going to be... There, you're just going to be able to hear in Ehrman's voice this, but that's not how you do it. Because his perspective is this Anglican apostolic church thing. Remember, he's the guy that does all the... The, the comic videos, you know, with me and Dan Wallace and Bart Ehrman, as if we believe the same thing, because I think he thinks we do. Um, and he was misrepresenting me and saying, I just get rid of all the Byzantine manuscripts. Just, it was very, very clear from what he said and some of the things that Sam said, that my whole intention and my whole purpose in doing these debates didn't seem to be clearly communicated. And I don't know if it's just, I'm just a horrible communicator, or just, or if this whole field is just so unusual to people that they struggle with it. By the way, before I continue the review, I have invited Nathan Beatty. Nathan, B-E-A-T-T-Y. Nathan is a Christian, a Reformed Christian on Facebook. I have invited Nathan Beatty uh, to join me on the program today. Uh, open invitation only to him, nobody else. Don't, don't bother calling today. We're not taking other calls. Um, the number is uh, 877-753-3341 for Nathan Beatty. Why? Because he posted on Facebook, James White argues like an atheist. And this is in reference uh, to the debates that were done this weekend. So I would like to invite him to explain to my audience how those debates 
means that I'm arguing like an atheist. Since 99.5% of Reformed scholars argue as I do, then evidently 99.5% of Reformed scholarship is arguing like atheists as well. And certainly the things that I have seen, and I haven't even, I mean, if I had wanted to immerse myself in vitriolic hatred, I could have done so over the past 24 or 36 hours, uh, because the types of comments that were coming uh, from TR-only type folks, just absolutely amazing. Uh, for example, when I posted my invitation to Nathan Beattie, now, now remember, Nate, I didn't, I don't know who Nathan Beattie is, okay? I, 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 not to, to my knowledge, I've, I've never met him. Apple cider vinegar again. That'll clear your sinuses. What? Nope, nope. Well, there's there's club soda and stir stevia flavored uh, stuff and ice. That's it. That's 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 all there is to it. Anyway, it it wakes you up in the morning. Um, I invited Nathan Beattie, who I do not know onto my own program, to my own audience, to explain why he thinks I argue like an atheist. Now, I can tell you, if he doesn't call, I'll tell you exactly what he would have said. I know. I listen to the other side. The other side doesn't listen to me, but I listen to the other side. Oh, I, oh they'll tune in, but they won't do so with a desire to understand. And I've been dealing with people who are willing to trade truth for certainty since the 1980s on this subject. Since the 1980s. Uh, I started studying King James Onlyism about 1984. So I'm coming up on 40 years of this now. Okay, so I get it. I, I do understand it. And I can, I can distinguish between the different groups and different flavors, but I see what is common, what's commonly driving this kind of thing. And so I can tell you what he's going to say, but I... Give him the opportunity to express it himself. Okay? So, I post that. And right afterwards, a guy named George Lacey responds and says, What a sad man to have to stir up controversy to make a living. At this point, I'm not only embarrassed for him, but also for his sycophants. This is This is the... This is the TR-only mindset, and it seems to be pretty nigh unto universal. It just seems to create this kind of attitude. So you've got a guy who makes an accusation against a minister of the gospel who has defended the, the, the faith against atheists multiple times in public settings. And he says, I argue like an atheist. That's not divisive, because that's in the service of TR-onlyism. But if I dare say, would you like to call in and explain that? You sad little man making a living after, off of stirring up controversy. <laughs> the hypocrisy is astonishing. It's just, it's like, wow, does that not make you like wobble when you walk? <laughs> it's just so bad. Uh, anyway, and then uh, Shane Dodson, and I know, I know that I've had conversations with Shane Dodson in the past, but... But he posts a, a, a meme that says, that's bait. So I'm not sure if Shane's into the TR-only stuff or not. Um, 
Right. Yeah, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and um and they're all they're all wondering how I know about this because this is in a, a Facebook group that I'm not a not a part of. Well and they're also he must have an alias. No, I do not have time for that. Sorry. Um but yeah, I do have friends in there. And when I see people behaving like children, they they let me know that people are behaving like children. So, anyways, Nathan, 877-753-3341. Um and Hopefully I'll remember before we wrap up that if you don't call, I'll go ahead and explain to people what you would have said if you had called, because I know what you would say if you're going to call. Um, and we'll respond to it. Uh, we'll respond to it then. As I was saying, it just seems that my intentions were not clearly expressed, though I thought I had clearly expressed them. Um, as I said, uh, Dr. Riddle insisted on dealing with a um, on dealing with a text that is not a TR only text. So there are many different kinds of people who can have many different kinds of textual critical theories who would defend the long writing of Mark. The long writing of Mark is quite defensible. It's ancient. Um, of all of the major variants in the New Testament, it's the most defensible. And so I said, well, why, why deal with something like that when that doesn't mark TR onlyism off? Because there are other perspectives that do not have the unique theological claims of the TR only movement that likewise defend the long reigning of Mark. So let's, let's deal with things that would actually define a position. Well, he wouldn't do it. So I'm like, okay, fine. I can talk about what the issues are. We can present the case. Um, you know, I I mentioned the perspectives on the endings of Mark book uh, that uh, uh, came out a number of years ago. It would give you a good idea of you know two different sides, but even different emphases within those sides and things like that. James Snap has a book on the subject. You can you can look at all that stuff. And as Erasmus said over and over again, make up your own mind. But it would allow me to say I want to know what the apostles wrote, and to point out as I did. That the fundamental reason, and I quoted Dr. Riddle, Dr. Riddle specifically stated that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is autopistos. It is self-authenticating. As a pericope, as a 12-verse block of texts, it is as self-authenticating as the 8th chapter of Romans is. Think about that. Think about that. Because this is where Dr. Riddle starts. This is the Textus Receptus. This is Scrivener's edition. This is a Greek text based upon the choices of an English translation, the King James Version of the Bible, which was based upon a number of printed texts, primarily, obviously, from Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza, which were based upon a very small number of manuscripts in comparison to the manuscripts that we have today, representing only a certain portion of even the Byzantine manuscript tradition. But this is the autographs. This is what the apostles wrote. Been kept pure in every age. Doesn't mean it can be found in every age from their perspective, but they believe it's been kept pure in every age, and this is what the apostles wrote. And by asking Dr. Riddle to defend Ephesians 3.9, where this stands alone, it stands alone. In fact, let me. They they frequently uh, want to to make reference to this. 
Uh, but let me let me show you something here. Uh, do you do you have this? Uh, oops. Great. Well, when I went full screen, sorry, hold on a second. When I went full screen, uh, everything went bye-bye. There it is. Uh, that's the best I'm going to be able to do. Because when I full screen, it, it, it messes everything else up. And I don't have anything up here to see if you've got it anyways. So um, you'll have to let me know once you've got it. Uh, okay, there's the small version of it. And there you go. And right here is uh, Kai Fotisai to bring to light uh, uh, Pontas. (laughs) Believe it or not, that's Pontas. Very different kind of font than we're used to. Tis he oikonomia to musteriu. To bring to light all that uh, of what is the oikonomia, the dispensation, the plan of the mystery. Okay, what is this? This is the Complutensian Polyglot. Now, the Complutensian Polyglot was actually printed before Erasmus's first edition, but it didn't come out until afterwards because, as we all know, back then you had to get papal approval for everything. So it was sitting in boxes in crates, in a storage house. Wonderfully beautiful volumes, uh, you know, a real magnificent amount of work. But what does it say? The Oikonomia. Why? Because that's what 99.998% of all manuscripts of Ephesians 3.9 have always said. Have always said. And so, this text allows us to focus in on an error in the TR and see if people will be willing to recognize that this isn't the autograph, this is the result of Erasmus analyzing a small number of manuscripts, of Stephanus adding a few more in, of Beza adding a few more in, and he actually thinking that one that he added in, he didn't realize Stephanus had it, and so that was was an error. But this is the result of a human process, not for TR onlyus, Because this is the result of a human process. This is the Tyndale House Greek New Testament. This is my this is the first Greek New Testament I ever had leather bound. I went into hawk for this. I couldn't I was making so little when this was made. This you know how old this is, Rich? Not only does it have those those my my foil thingies in it that I that I used in high school, okay? But this is so old that the phone number in the front has no area code on it. Because all of Arizona had one area code. So you didn't need it. Yeah, there was a day, folks, when phone numbers were only seven digits long. Uh, that's how old this thing is. UBS 3rd edition, non-corrected. It hadn't even come out with the corrected edition. Uh, whether you have the, the Nessialan down there, whatever whatever it is, they are human-derived texts. And that's all we have. And that's where the issue is. They want to say, nope, 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 that makes you an atheist. No, that makes me a Christian. Because every generation of Christians, from the start, has had to deal with the issue of the fact 
that God's word has been transmitted to us in a particular fashion. And did you notice, if you listen to the debate, Dr. Riddle never touched something I brought up in both parts of the debate. And that is the New Testament authors, quote, textual variants from the Greek Septuagint that vary from the Hebrew Masoretic text in their writings. Deal with it. They can't. They can't. Because theirs is an anachronistic. It's backwards. It's, it's taking this and looking through it back into history. And so when you look through this, you have a certain set of arguments for the long graining of Mark. Because it's in here. So you have to have arguments. And then you, learn, you turn it over to the comma Johannium and 1 John 5, 7, different set of arguments. You'll still use them. You turn it over to the Pericope Adultery. It's in here. Different set of arguments. Why? Because the evidence is different for each one. In Ephesians 3, 9, completely different set of evidence than you have for any of the others. And so once this becomes the lens through which you're looking, there is no way to question this. There is no way then to defend this because it is your beginning presupposition. And the scary thing was, Dr. Riddle actually went so far as to identify that presupposition of this as the autograph with the presuppositional nature of the existence of the triune God as the foundation of all human knowledge. And that is a category error that's fatal to all of apologetics. Fatal. From a presuppositional perspective, if you can't tell the difference between the foundational necessity of the triune God to make all facts facts and understandable, and the specific printed edition of the Greek New Testament, then you're not a presuppositionalist, and you don't understand presuppositionalism at all. At all. That was what was... Ad- I, I, I immediately, thankfully, and often in debates, you don't get, get to do this. Sometimes if the person makes a statement... And you don't have an opportunity to respond later on. It just, it just hangs there. But in this, oppor- this instance, I had the opportunity to go, whoa, wait, wait a minute. We just heard Dr. Riddle equivocate between this assertion and the very centrality of the triune God as the foundation of all human knowledge. Wow. That's amazing. So the whole point is, in the first half of the debate, I was more than content to say, hey, this is a very ancient reading, has really good foundational evidence to it, and it's found in some of the earlier uh, uh, translations, and it's found in, in early patristic sources, and that's, that's, that's exactly right. I still reject it, and here's why. And I never got almost any kind of meaningful response other than, well... Those other endings exist because the original fell off. The last, the, that 9 through 20 fell off of some early manuscript that then got copied and it became popular, I guess. None of this could be documented. It's all hypothetical. Um, and then the other endings came about because that became so popular, which goes against the whole apostolic church thing, but that's a whole other argument. Um, but you, you, it's pure speculation, and I'm just simply going, okay, the two earliest manuscripts that we have of Mark do not possess it. It's not in a number of the manuscripts of translations and other languages, and you have all these other multiple endings. So 
Why? And, and people saying, no, there's only a couple. Well, there are only a couple, but sometimes they're put together. The Fear Logion stuck in the middle of the, the long ending of Mark in Washingtonianus. So there are different forms of the ending of Mark. Why? Why would that be if this, and why didn't it happen anyplace else? Why didn't it happen uh, to, uh, to one of the epistles? Or why didn't it happen to Luke? Or why didn't it happen to, to Matthew? Or John? I mean, John 21, I mean, you know, what if you, no, it only happens to Mark. But I'm fine to go, and you know what? If your methodology emphasizes these types of things as, as being more important than the antiquity of the sources and the relationship of sources one to another, then you're going to come to a different conclusion. And I'm not going to uh, you know, have a cow about that. I'm going to disagree with you. We can, we can debate it, but uh, fine. Okay. Then the second day rolled around. And I told a few people, today's going to be a lot different than last night. Why? Because the roles are going to be reversed. And I'm going to be able to demonstrate, and it was funny, some people said, well, you're being inconsistent because you argued one way yesterday. No, I argued the exact same way both days. We both tried to make that argument. Dr. Riddle failed. People actually tried to equivocate a couple of, at most, a couple of barely known minuscule manuscripts from the second millennium with the two earliest unsealed manuscripts of of Mark, the two earliest witnesses we have, together with versional witnesses. No textual scholar would ever make that error. It is an error to equivocate those two sources. No, No one who works in the field would ever make that error, but a lot of people were making that error and saying you're being inconsistent. No textual scholar would ever say that. You're not being inconsistent at all. But the point was, in this situation, you could now see that when you boil it all down, when you get rid of all the excess verbiage, what Jeffrey Riddle is saying is, this is it. It's not questionable. The manuscripts do not matter. Patristics do not matter. Early versions do not matter. If it's here, it's the autograph. And it's the autograph because something special happened at the Reformation. Something special happened at the Reformation. And so the text of the Reformation, now is this the text of the Reformation? No, it's not. How can you say that? It's simple. Any meaningful historian would have to recognize this. For something to be the text of the Reformation, what was... If this was the text of the Reformation, the only meaningful way of saying that is this. Oh. I should have that in here. Do I have it down there? No, that's the Greek Septuagint. That's not it. Huh. Well, I'm going to have to grab one and, and pull it in here so that I will have this the next time I swing around and try to grab something. But I don't have it back here. But um, let's pretend for a second. <laughs> That this is Latin Vulgate. <clears throat> All right? In this sense, Latin Vulgate versus the Greek, yes, you could say that. But that's only in the sense, not of the specific readings of this, over, over against something like this, but Greek as in 
that which gave rise to the Vulgate. That would be a meaningful assertion that this is the Reformation text. But they didn't have this. So they were not saying this is superior to this because they didn't have this and could not have this. The reason TR onlyism can exist is because the vast majority of people are absolutely ignorant of the status of textual studies in the past. They don't realize the centrality of the rise of the printing press. They don't understand how vitally important it is that we now have catalogs of manuscripts. They did not have that. You cannot do meaningful textual critical study of manuscript relationships if you don't have access to them. And until there is a catalog that can, that can assign a consistent designation and then provide the contents, transcriptions of the manuscripts, eventually, last century, microfilm, which was really bad if you ever had to use it. It's just like, oh, oh. but now that's this is why CSNTM is so important and the digitizing these manuscripts and, and why you can now go online and check these manuscripts out and you can blow them up and you've got these super high-res photographs. You need to realize this is all brand new. This is all in the past decade, especially the computer part of it. It's in the past decade. I mean, I remember 14 years ago going to London and trying to find a way to put more of the textual data stuff onto my phone or onto a small iPad. Well, not iPad, but something you can carry. Because we were going out to talk to, to Muslims on the streets in London. I didn't, I didn't have it in this yet. That, this was only 14 years ago. Now it's all here. That's brand new. So once you realize that, then you realize this whole idea that this is, that's why I will never call it the confessional text position, because that is an anachronistic historical monstrosity. It's an anachronistic historical monstrosity. They did not have these. They did not make a decision of one over the other. They did not have the data. They did not have the catalogs. Don't force them to take positions on the basis of anachronistically forcing them into those contexts that they never experienced. That is unfair. And it's abusive history. It's an abusive history. So, in the second part of the debate, what you were able to see was the tight circularity. So much so that I, I brought up the, the phrase um, that he used, providential eclecticism. Providential eclecticism. Now, he may be the only person who's ever come up with that. I've never heard any place else. But think about what that means. Eclecticism is reasoning through each of the texts based upon internal and external evidence and weighing those things. And if you've got reason eclecticism and you've got people who emphasize the external over the internal and some the internal over the external and, and some people go back and forth. But providential eclecticism, how is that anything less than inspiration? How is that anything less than inspiration? Because if, since you, since 
you'll go against the manifold testimony of the entire historical church and manuscript tradition to maintain Ephesians 3, 9, 1 John 5, 7, Revelation 16, 5. Since you will throw out the entire manuscript tradition at that point and say it's got to be this, then the providence that produced this must... How do you even call that eclecticism? Unless it's actually God-guided Erasmus to manuscript 2817, if that's what he used. And then remember what 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 Dr. Rell said? Well, yeah, God did it. And I said, because I'm a Christian. So, here you have a situation where we're both Reformed. And so I believe in the absolute providence of God, and that means it was a part of God's decree that history unfolded the way that history unfolded. That's absolutely true. But that is not an argument for my understanding or his understanding of the methodology we should use going forward from here. God did it. So as I pointed out, well, that's what Gail Ripplinger said, too. You know, in acrostic algebra, she had to use NASV instead of NASB. She used NASB throughout her book. Why do you use NASV? And when I asked her that, she said, that's what God calls it. You can't argue with that. You can't argue with that. So if Erasmus came up with a reading, God did it. And it must be infallible. That's all there is to it. End of that discussion. That's easy, isn't it? It's also indefensible. Why did Joseph Smith render the Book of Mormon way? Did Joseph Smith render the Book of Mormon? God did it. Why is the Quran say God did it? We're done. Let's let's all go have a coffee together because we don't really have anything else to say because we have now completely removed our text from history. And you see, the problem is that's not reformed. That's not how we do anything else. We recognize God's redemptive work in history. We recognize that uh, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, not somebody else. That he was crucified in Jerusalem, not someplace else. And so we don't answer challenges by saying, God did it. God did it. And that's probably what's behind Nathan Beatty's statement. Oh, he's, he's arguing like an atheist. Because I am saying that Scripture came to us in history. That God used the distribution of manuscripts persecution of the church, even the Roman Empire itself, to give us the New Testament in a way that is superior to, because it's a free transmission, it's superior to a controlled transmission as you have in the Quran. Now, unlike Dr. Riddle, who has never taken any of this into the debate realm with Islam or with atheists, I have for hours on end in front of university audiences with Yusuf Ismail at Northwest University in Pachasun, South Africa, in a church in London with Adnan Rashid. I have taken this into those places. I've gone into the Gray Street Mosque in Durban, South Africa, with the Muslims sitting right in front of me, and I've defended these things, and Dr. Riddle has not, and he can't. And it's not because the man is not capable, it's because the position is incoherent. Coherent. Incoherent. That's why. Sam said, well, uh, you know, Dr. White seemed to be quite passionate in the second part of the debate. Had to be, because now the realities were coming forth. That this is a circular system. It's ahistorical. 
and it cannot allow for criticism. Therefore, it's indefensible and cannot provide a ground for the criticism of any other religious faith. There you go. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And look, Dr. Riddle brought that up in his opening statement on the first night. I did not. I actually, I was really tempted to. I did not have, I had a, I had a few notes for the first night. I did not for the second night, second morning. Um, but I was highly tempted to just go directly to what the real issue is. Once I got into the rebuttal, since he had raised his definition of providential preservation and the Texas Receptus, then I felt free to respond to it and point out, hey, he has made the statement. Mark 16, 9 through 20 is out of pistos. He attributes to a textual variant the character of self-authentication that all Reformed people attribute to all of Scripture. And not only the long writing of Mark, he'd have to do the exact same thing with Ephesians 3.9. So a reading that he has no evidence that any Christian in all of history, in the first thousand years of, of church history, ever saw, is the autopistos. It is the self-authenticating revelation of God. So much for the early church. <laughs> so much for the building of that church over those, that thousand years. And so it just really seems like, you know, maybe I've just failed to make it very, very clear. Why am I doing it? It's, it's not because I want controversy. I don't like having Reformed people uh, accuse me of arguing like an atheist or making money off of controversy and all the rest of this absurdity. I would rather avoid all of that. And most people do. But I have a problem. I actually take this message out into the world. I actually take it into the very places it's going to be denied with the greatest strength and the greatest argumentation. So I have to be consistent. And so it's one thing for you guys to sit in your private Facebook groups and throw out your slander and your jokes and pat yourselves on your back, on, on each other's back. How many of you are out there doing anything? Just ask yourself a question. Just sit back. Just push your chair back and go, yeah, how many of us are? How many of us are taking this out there against the people who are denying the faith and, and denying the transmission of the text of Scripture? And take the God-did-it defense and see how that works. Have you never sat down with a Mormon missionary? Have you never dealt with their saying when you point out the problems in the text of the Book of Mormon? Either the changes or the, the, the fact that it's ahistorical or it's contradictions with the Bible. Have they not looked at you and said, God did it? And then gave you a, a warm testimony that the Holy Spirit has confirmed that in their heart? How many of you have ever sat down with a Mormon missionary for more than an hour? I've witnessed over 5,000 LDS missionaries. That doesn't make me right, 
But what it does mean is I know what it takes to be consistent. And I don't have to hide in a private Facebook group. And for some reason, Nathan Beatty didn't call today. But I just told you what he would have said. You say that I'm arguing like an atheist. You are actually making the mistake of thinking that placing the transmission of the text of the New Testament in history, which is what all the early churches did, all the early church fathers did, that's what Eusebius was talking about, that's what Jerome was talking about, that's what Origen was talking about. Standing in their line, arguing like they argued, like Erasmus argued, like Beza argued, makes you an atheist. No, Nathan, you've been deceived by a really, really bad circular argument that feeds into your desire to have absolute certainty, absolute certainty by confusing categories. You can have absolute certainty about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make you an expert in every textual variant in the transmission of the text in the New Testament. Textual variation is an artifact of the methodology that God used to preserve his word. You don't like that, and so you dare accuse those who have done so much more work in this area than you have, who have taken this out against unbelievers of, being, of, of, of acting and thinking like atheists? Brother, I hope you'll think through what you said. I hope you'll think through what you said. May I repeat what I said during the debate? Because this, and you have, to, you have to say, I've said it over and over and over again. If you consistently apply meaningful, sound rules of hermeneutics to the Tyndale Greek New Testament and to the Texas Receptus, will there be any difference in the outcome, in the message of the gospel that you preach? None. N-O-N-E. None. Does that make this whole conversation irrelevant? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is that those people who say, well, you hate the word of God, you're destroying the word of God. It's ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. Even the King James translator said, the meanest translation of the scriptures that seeks to be consistent and faithful is worthy of being called the word of God. Now, a lot of modern people don't like that because they want a level of specificity that no one in, the, in, the, in, in church history could have ever understood. And those are the people that when you show them that the apostles quoted textual variants in the Greek Septuagint in support of their argument, they end up leaving faith. I've seen it happen. I had a conversation with a guy once. And that's what had absolutely rocked his world. And it likewise rocked him that there were people that already knew about it and that it didn't rock their world. So, I am very thankful that the debates took place. I thought I did everything I could to to bring this out and make it clear and understandable. And hopefully this will help to explicate further 
My concern truly is the long-term benefit of the church. And I believe that the embracing of this kind of incoherent circularity fundamentally damages the defense of the text of Scripture. So that's why we did it. And I think they were quite clear. I think they were quite clear. All right, there you go. Um, so you, you did check the phone lines. They were they were all working and stuff like that. And... All right, just wanted to, just wanted to make sure because um, um, we gave we gave the, we gave the opportunity, gave the opportunity, laid it out there. There you go. All right. Well, we'll be back tomorrow uh, because that's going to be it for the week. Like I said. Have a uh, leadership retreat to go to this week. And um, then I really don't, I honestly don't see anything until we go back to St. Charles uh, at the beginning of December. And then from St. Charles Drive to, uh, we're going we're gonna to need to rent a car for the first time up there in St. Charles. And then drive down to Pryor, see Derek Melton and the Saints down there in, uh, in Pryor. And uh, Derek's going to, uh, take me out and torture a rabbit. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like some kind of weird ceremony, but actually we're we're, we're going to go coyote hunting. And so you you use that. Have you ever heard one of those those coyote lures? Oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah, but 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 the but the sound of the dying rabbit thing. Oh man, that's enough to give you nightmares. I I have just recently gotten over the nightmares that I got from that the last time I was there. And uh, so, what? Oh, it is. It's, it's just, oh, it's just, oh, man. And all those, all, all the coyotes were probably just sitting right behind us going, did you think we're going out there? <laughs> so, anyways, I don't think I have anything until uh, that trip uh, to uh, uh, St. Charles uh, and to uh, Pryor. So, that'll be the first Full weekend, and then the next week in um, uh, in prior in December. Uh, so looks like uh, the rest of October and uh, November should be fairly. Man, I'm telling you. Well, yeah, yeah, we might be able to do something. I'm, I, I mean, I, I might be able to find a friend that would be willing to do a. Well, that'd be a great place for future sweater vest dialogues too. Uh, so that'll be that'll be fun. So we'll we'll do something. But hey. No one can touch Doug Wilson during November because that's 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 when he burns sofas and does weird stuff like that. The problem, the thing that scares me, we are not burning sofas. No, 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 not in the desert. We could burn all of Phoenix down. Um, but uh, uh, the thing that scares me is, have you noticed each each year, Doug has escalated the pyrotechnics. So eventually, something something's going to go badly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope not, but uh, something's going to go badly wrong when, when you keep trying to get bigger and bigger every year. So anyway, thanks for watching the program today. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless.